0: Welcome to the Story Geek Show. On today's show, we've got a busy show today. Up first, I'll be reacting to Ben Shapiro's review of the Batman. And then I'll be digging deeper into episode four of Moon Knights, And I'll finally go behind the scenes into the creation of chapter one of my full cast audiobook, co-written with Nathan Cech, Death of a Bounty Hunter. I played a clip from that audiobook on Tuesday. I will be breaking that down, going behind the scenes a little bit about how we created that in today's show at the very end. This show will have spoilers for both The Batman and Moon Knight Episode 4 So just know that going in I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter And Time Slingers, and this is The Story Geek Show So up first today, a very uh, Potentially controversial segment Because I thought that um, I had a take I had a take on The Batman, now most people Love The Batman They love it, they love it I like it, I like it But I do think it has one Major issue that I'll get into a little bit more here. I've already created one video on the house stories work channel Talk a little bit more about that today But I also heard that um, You know conservative pundit for lack of a better term conservative pundit conservative idealist uh, Ben Shapiro Did not like it and it made me wonder if we had some of the same issues or if his issues were different than mine or how that was gonna play out So, Do I agree with Ben Shapiro? Well, let's find out, shall we? <laughs> I won't play his entire video today, by the way. So if you want to see his entire review, you can watch that on his channel. He, he, he has the rights to that content. I'm just going to show a few clips here and there and then respond to some of the things that he brings up in his review. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Now, remember, I'm coming at this from a Batman fan, but also from the point of view of someone who writes stories. And so one of the things that I'm always looking for is, is what's set up in this story delivered upon? Does it make sense? Does it, does it live into what I think that the creators were intending? So we're just going to play some clips from Ben Shapiro's review of The Batman, and then I'm going to be reacting to some of that. The first clip we have coming up here is a 40-second clip, and we'll take a look at it together right now. Let's go full screen here. Let's check it out.
1: All right, folks. So last night I went and I saw The Batman. My review of that is coming up in just one moment. This video is sponsored by Ring. So last night I went and saw The Batman. Went and saw it with my wife. It is one million hours long. And it's one of those movies where I started off and I was like, okay. And then I got a little further in. I was like, "Uh, all right. And then I got to the end. I was like, meh. And then the more I thought about it, the angrier I became. And so you're about to hear a lot of hot takes on The Batman because I hate this movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there you go. There's there's our there's our first portion of of what he's talking about here, where he says he hates this movie. Um, and let's talk about some of the things that he likes, because he goes on to describe some of the things that he really likes about the movie. But he's, there's only one thing that he really really likes about this movie, and that is uh, he likes the look and the tone of the film. He does sort of compliment the the music and the performances he says that there's or basically kind of just okay except for he really did like the riddler and the penguin performances so he liked those so what's my response to those aspects of this well, I think that we do agree on the look and tone of the film. I think that that's fantastic. Um I had no issues there at all. In fact, I think that what Matt Reeves creates in the the tone and the feel of Gotham is fantastic it is a little bit of Nolan in there uh, primarily because he's shooting the same city. They're both shooting Chicago, although he includes some things some aspects of Liverpool, which gives it more of a Gothic feel at times, which is fantastic and I think is appropriate. So I actually prefer Matt Reeves's characterization of gotham or even over and above nolan's characterization of gotham and it sort of feels like a mix between nolan and, and what we got on the early days with um with tim burton so i i like that part of it a lot i think we we disagree we partially or we we disagree pretty strongly on the music he kind of partially liked the music i really liked the music I thought the use of, um, you know, it's kind of on trend to to like the 1990s right now and <laughs> see throwbacks to the 1990s. And one of the things that I think is done here in this film is that it feels like a lot of 1990s um, aesthetics. And I think the music adds really well to that. So I really like the music. I think Giacchino is actually a really good composer. Now, he did say that as far as performances go, I'm going to break down a couple of the performances. I think Pattinson's performance as Batman is... Um, is, is good. I think it's good. I think it's it's we're not asking him to do anything that's super outside the realm of what bat, what we know of of this kind of Batman, right? this this great detective, but very, you know, he, he his only emotion is anger for the most part. So we're not seeing like a lot of range here. and I think that that's okay. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite kind of Batman, but I do think it sets up future movies using Robert Pattinson, who's a fantastic actor just watch something like The Lighthouse and you can see how good of an actor he is. I think it's setting him up for, for better, more nuanced roles in this character for Batman in the future. Kravitz's Catwoman, I he, you know, he, Shapiro says it's okay. I've seen this film twice. I think Kravitz's performance as Catwoman is great. I actually think that she displays a lot more emotional range as she's asked to as a character in this story. She's asked to be sort of, you can look at this film through Catwoman's eyes as how most people feel about Gotham. And that has its own problems, advantages and disadvantages. She's willing to do things that she probably should not be willing to do. But a lot of people in Gotham are. That's why Gotham is so corrupt. So I think that she does a really good job of like, I want good things to happen, but I'm willing to do bad things to, to make that happen. So I thought that was really good. I, I liked her performance a lot. One of my favorite performances, and I totally disagree with, um, this is a strong disagreement with Ben Shapiro here, is that Taturo's performance as Falcone, I think is amazing. And and this is the same guy who played the butler in Mr. Deets. Sneaky, sneaky, sir. You know, like this guy. That's the same guy who's playing um, Falcone. And Falcone seems like he controls a lot of things in this film. So I have a strong disagree with Ben Shapiro there. I think Falcone, uh, played by John Taturo, is amazing. Now, I think he liked uh, Dano's performance as the Riddler and I think he liked it a lot more than I did because I think that this is, no, don't get me wrong. I think Paul Dano is doing a fantastic job with what he was asked to do for this character. For me, it felt a little bit too psychotic. I think it felt a little bit too over the top psychotic and I would have like made it a little bit more subdued and made him seem like, not, not a character who's so unhinged, but rather a character who's super intelligent. I mean, the guy's an accountant, right? And obviously he's lashing out against this corruption in the city, but I would have made that much more subdued and had his had his behavior be really uh, targeted towards things that were corrupt and like revealing different aspects of what was going on. I think he gets a little bit unhinged at parts and that doesn't, I wouldn't have done it that way. It's not bad. I, it's not bad. It's, it's certainly not, I would never say it's, it was bad. I just would have taken it in a different direction. Um, and then he says Farrell's performance is excellent as Penguin. I agree that Colin Farrell's performance as Penguin is awesome. In fact, it's almost impossible to tell that it's Colin Farrell. <laughs> There's only moments where you can kind of hear a Colin Farrell-esque voice there. So, you know, I have some agreements and disagreements there, but, you know, nothing too big. So I'm going to fast forward ahead to the three-minute mark, and we'll see. we'll see what Ben Shapiro has to say here. About this next segment,
1: and herein lies the main problem
0: with the film. Ah, the main the biggest problem.
1: problem with the film is that the film hates Batman. The Why film hates Batman. This Ninety-nine dollars okay, drone over a, established
0: drone brands. We have to get a There's a tiny U.S. drone. <laughs> oh, the film hates
1: Batman. Like the actual Batman character hates the Batman character, and this drives me up an absolute
0: wall. The biggest problem with the film is not the wokeness. Yes, there's some. Wokeness. Okay, so he says that, and then he gets into some other things before he addresses that big problem. So let's get into some of the other things that he addresses first in the next portion of this. So he says that there's a mischaracterization of the Batman, and then he brings up there's some wokeness, which is not a major complaint of his, but he brings up the wokeness. So let me just uh, explain some of those things that he says are woke elements, and we'll break those down a little bit. He mentions, so, and, and I want to be fair to Ben, because I don't want to ever miscategorize anybody. He's not super annoyed by the wokeness. He brings it up. He discusses it a little bit. He's That's not his main complaint. So we're not going to spend a ton of time here. But what he says is woke is basically that the characters, of the, the characters that are portrayed by people of color are all portrayed as good characters. That's Catwoman, Gordon, and the new mayor. And then he says that the white characters are all portrayed as bad characters. And again, I want to give him credit. He's not saying that this is a major issue. He's just saying that uh, it, it's something that appears in the film. Now, I have a slightly different take on this, Um, so I disagree with him here, and here's why I disagree with this particular categorization, is that the setup of this film is that Gotham is insanely corrupt, Um, and that's from government officials at the top all the way to just your street-level criminals, and that's not uncommon for Gotham. That's incredibly common for Gotham. So the existing political infrastructure is corrupt, and that happens to be predominantly white, at least in this... In this version of gotham gordon and the mayoral candidate who i can't remember her name but she's a mayoral candidate um, who's running up against the mayor who is killed in the beginning of this film they are definitely cleaner characters right they don't have as many um associated uh weaknesses or things that they're involved in that are inherently corrupt but i would also argue that those characters are barely important to this overall story the mayoral candidate in general is just serves as an alternative to the corruption that has existed prior in the city and someone who's trying to overcome that by having a president or a mayoral campaign um, so I don't think you can necessarily say she's good. I just don't think we know enough about her to say like, oh, she's really good. She does seem better than what exists, but what exists is being shown to us as corrupt and criminal and having major issues all the way down with this uh, existing political infrastructure. So, sure, so sure, you could say that she seems good, but I mean, she's such a minor character that any minor character can kind of seem good. Now, I think that Catwoman is interesting, but I don't think we could ever call Catwoman good. I think. Catwoman is the person we see Gotham through her eyes and we see like well this is clearly bad and this is clearly bad but don't forget Catwoman is is willing to do things that are also contributing to Gotham's problems I mean she's robbing from people she at several points of the film is willing to kill people so uh you know I don't think that you can call her good you can maybe call her like uh, chaotic good, where she's doing some things that are that are maybe not things that we would think you should do, but she's doing them for good reasons. You could say that. Um, but again, I think the portrayal of Catwoman is, first of all, it's very comics accurate, in my opinion. Obviously, whenever we talk about Batman comics, saying something's comics accurate is like, well, which comics are you talking about? Because there's a plethora of comics to choose from. But I do think that in general, her 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 portrayal of Catwoman is fantastic. Um, to me, the setup here is more about existing political and societal infrastructure and that being the status quo versus new thinking and ways of changing what gotham should be right um so it's not necessarily about wokeism versus maybe what you'd call like conservatism or something along those lines i think it's really more about existing infrastructures and existing systems versus new thinking that is rebelling against this corrupt part of the system so the legacy political societal landscape is slightly older and white but to me given gotham's history that's not necessarily surprising like that's not something that i would look at and be like oh well clearly this is more woke than every other batman comic (laughs) right like it seems like a lot of the batman comics that that infrastructure exists in that way um and I think, too, you know, if you talk about both Batman and the Riddler, two white characters, they're trying to help topple Gotham's corruption. So it's not just, you know, people who are a little bit more woke, who are trying to topple this existing corruption. You also have people who are also shown as white characters who are fighting the white infrastructure. So I just don't know if that argument holds a lot of weight for me personally. And again, I got to give credit where credit is due. He's he's not complaining a lot about this. He's just saying that this exists. Um and by the way, I think you can even ar- argue that you know, Gordon isn't a hundred percent good either. So one of the things he was saying was the mayoral candidate Gordon and Catwoman are shown to be the good characters. But I mean, even Gordon is enlisting the help of a vigilante in Batman. Like right, like so if you're if you're a person who's like, would they would lean, let's call it woke, right, they would be saying like we should defund the police. Well, you're definitely anti-Batman. Like the last thing you want is you want someone running around the streets, a white guy in a costume running around the streets doing whatever he wants to, especially with weaponry and so forth. And and even when you look at the street level criminals, I mean, some of the street level criminals we see are white, and but some of those street level criminals we see are people of color. So I don't know that I don't know. I mean, I, I know that there are there are phrases in the movie that are used that I think you know Catwoman has a phrase in this film that. You know old white guys pr- with privilege or something along those lines. but that's like a line that someone would say. like so it's that's like kind of reflecting some of what reality is in our current uh, in our current environment. So now I will say this, I will say this. if we were to go on and see in a sequel film, which I'm sure we're gonna get because this film has been doing really well. If we were going to go on and see a sequel film, and they had they delved into the mayor, the new mayor's background a little bit more, and she was completely uncorrupt and had no weaknesses and had no like uh, like uh, she was just a completely clean, uh, everything works out great character. Then I think that you might have more of an argument to be to be made there, is that uh, that there that maybe we're getting along the lines of not being able to showcase things quite fairly, because every character should have weaknesses, and every character should be tempted to do wrong, and no character is going to act in ways that are that are. I mean, maybe maybe Superman, because <laughs> he's the ultimate Boy Scout, but very very few characters I should say are going to be temp not tempted to be doing something that's um that's incorrect there so and again to be fair to ben he's not really uh, like super upset about this p- specific point but um but i would say like i'm not sure that i see the same amount of wokeness that he sees and i do have a pretty sensitive woke meter let's see what he has to say coming up here in the next part of it's like a bat and go around beating up criminals
1: it's not answered and the director doesn't ah. know and the writer doesn't know so this and let it's, me it's go back always for for film lefty twitter but the main theme is not a throwaway the main theme is what matters here. The film despises Batman. So every Batman iteration has to explain why a man who is a billionaire would dress up like a bat and go around beating up criminals. It's not answered. And the director doesn't know.
0: And the writer doesn't know. And this is the problem. So in the Nolan... So interesting. And he's going to go into describing the Nolan, all Nolan's uh, universe, and I'll describe that here a little bit as well. But this is an interesting... This is a really interesting point because basically what he's saying is why is Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne why is he doing what he's doing so let's break down a little bit of his argument here one he's using nolan's movies as a comparison and also notes that nolan's movies are the best batman movies i'm going to partially agree with that but i'll talk about that in a bit um he does point out that in uh that that nolan's batman had to become batman to fight crime and cause criminals to fear him because no amount of money could be used to fight crime so he had to actually Uh, fight back against crime by causing criminals to fear the symbol of Batman. And I would say that's a pretty good assessment. So excellent assessment, Ben. That is exactly what is happening um, in in the Dark Knight or, or the Batman Begins and the Dark Knight. What Batman is doing is he's saying, I need to become a symbol of justice. And in order to become a symbol of justice, I can't do what my dad did, what Thomas Wayne did, and infuse money into that system because criminals don't fear the money. Oftentimes, they'll just use the money. They'll somehow get access to that money and use it to their own ends. So it's not preventing the heinous crimes that are happening. Okay, so what am I going to do? Well, I have to make the criminals fear me. I have to make the criminals fear to do the thing that we don't want them to do in Gotham. And so therefore, I'm going to become Batman. So I think that's a good assessment. I think Ben's take there is is, um, is really strong. Now, he says that there is no reason, though, as to why Battenson, this Matt Reeves, Robert Pattinson Batman, is doing what he's doing. I'm going to keep saying Battenson, by the way, just so we can delineate between the Nolan Batman and the Reeves Batman. So... So, why is Battenson doing what he's doing? So, here's my response to this line of thinking from uh, from Ben, Ben Shapiro. While I agree that Nolan's first two films two first two films, Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, are superior to the Batman. I do think that the Batman is maybe a little bit better, if not if not a lot better, in some people's eyes, especially. And in my own eyes, I think I would say that it's 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 better. Um, then the third film, the dark Knight rises, uh, that film actually, I think has some of the same issues that this film does, honestly, in some, in some ways, there's some comparisons to be made there, but Batman begins and the dark Knight, I do think are the best, uh, Batman films. He calls them the best superhero films. I don't know that they're the best superhero films, but they're certainly near the top. I like guardians of the galaxy a lot. Um, really love man of steel too. That's up there. Uh, the wonder woman film that's up there for me. And I, I like Zack Snyder, right? So a lot of people do not like Zack Snyder. They hate it when I say that, but I really like Zack Snyder, so a lot of his films I, I am a big fan of. so uh, so I think he's like you know he's 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 on to something there, but he's not exactly he's not exactly on the same page as I am. Now, let's break down uh Batman's why in the Batman. Because he's saying that there is no why that the writers don't know what Batman's why is, and nor do does the director. And I, and I actually disagree with that. Here's why: Thomas Wayne in the Batman started the renewal project, but that renewal project has not worked. The renewal project was an influx of funds because Thomas Wayne is a billionaire, um, an influx of funds into Gotham to try and solve some of Gotham's problems. But clearly, Gotham still has massive problems. So the renewal project has not worked at all, and so. The question is, why has it not worked? And that is what both the Riddler and the Batman are attempting to solve in this film. So like in the Nolan Nolan universe, money doesn't solve Gotham's problems. There's no amount of money that's going to solve the problems that exist in Gotham City. So I agree with Ben's take that Bale's Batman needs to create a symbol of justice. I disagree with his take, though, that Bat- that that son, Robert Pattinson's Batman, doesn't have a why. So here's my thinking about how that works. Since the renewal project did not work, Thomas Wayne's legacy did not work. In fact, some of his legacies even called to- called into question in this film as to whether he did things out of a corrupt, corrupt kind of perspective or whether he did- whether he did them out of a justice sort of perspective. And, you know, different people have different. Falcone has one feeling about that. And uh, Alfred has a different feeling about that. Um, by, by the way, special call out uh, to Andy Serkis. Um, not necessarily my favorite, Alfred. However, this dude has been in Marvel. This dude has been in DC. This dude has been in King Kong. This dude has been in Star Wars. He played Snoke in Star Wars. Um, and he was in Lord of the Rings. Andy Serkis is like a geek hero at this point, right? Like certainly is an awesome, awesome, awesome character. So uh, thank you, Andy Serkis, for being involved in all of our favorite uh, properties here. Um, so not only did Thomas Thomas Wayne's legacy not work in Gotham, but in fact, Thomas Wayne was murdered in Gotham. He got caught up in the crime that he was trying to prevent and or solve. So Battinson's Batman is doing what he's doing because very few people in Gotham actually understand the issues that the city faces. And when you don't understand a problem, it's impossible to really solve it the right way way. When you don't understand what the root of the problem is, you will do things that Catwoman is doing. Now, we can look at Catwoman and say, yeah, Catwoman is doing some things that I would have done. She's stealing from the corrupt people. She's trying to fight for the little guy. However, in doing those things, she's perpetuating the system of corruption that she's involved in, right? And so what what I would categorize that as is that Catwoman doesn't understand the real problem and is thus trying to solve some of the other problems that exist in her own way, as opposed to solving the root of the problem. So I think that Batman in this film thinks that by becoming a detective, the world's greatest detective, as we know in the comics, he can effectively figure out what's making Gotham so corrupt and then solve the problem that way. So it's not the same. He's not creating, he has not yet created the full... Bale batman excuse yet he hasn't fully lived into all well, i need to create the symbol so that i can now he acknowledges that he's already become a symbol because whenever the the uh the bat symbol is displayed people do fear him and they show that but he's still thinking that he might need to be vengeance he just doesn't know what the problem is yet and so he's you know i think that that's that's really when it comes down to it though him becoming a better detective is his why so that he can figure out how to solve Gotham's problems. It just so happens that by being that detective, he has to be really aggressive because he's gonna be dealing with the dozens of Gotham's underworld. And so I do think that the director and the writer understands Batson's uh, motivation, and I do believe they understand his why. So uh, Ben says that's never explained, but I would argue that it's actually heavily implied, and so I would disagree with him there. Batman's why is discovering, by becoming the world's greatest detective, what why gotham has so many problems and what is the core um of that problem and now why is that important to him because his parents were killed by gotham's violence and so therefore he wants to solve gotham's violence and that does set up the vengeance take that Battenson will ultimately fail at because it's not the correct way to solve this particular problem right um, I also will say that he go, that that Ben Shapiro in this in this review, goes on to say that Batman and Bruce Wayne are essentially the same character. And I agree that it doesn't feel quite like the right Batman or the Batman that we expect to see. Again, in the comics, there's there are many different versions of Batman. And it does not also feel like the right Bruce Wayne. But I also think that this is a much younger Batman. He's got things to learn. This is not somebody who shows up with, I'm Batman. I've been doing this for 10 years. I know what the game is. I know how to play the game. This is a Batman that's very early on in his career. So this is okay. I don't think he knows how to use the Bruce Wayne character versus how to use the Batman character yet. He hasn't even come up with a definition of that because he still doesn't know why Gotham's problems are so bad. This is what this movie is trying to expose. So I think that Pattinson's Batman actually feels like Nolan's Bruce Wayne... Before he became Batman, this is when he was going to go, uh, when he had the gun on him, and he was going to go shoot one of the people in the trial. Um, He feels like that kind of character. He's just a little bit further along because he's already become Batman. And he kind of wants revenge. He wants vengeance. This is part of what he says he's all about. So I have no problem with that. I actually disagree with um, with his points there. Now let's skip ahead to a little further in the video and see what Ben's next take is. I think we're going to go about to 750 here. We'll play it from right here. A lot. That's that's pretty much all he does. He's a bad detective. He doesn't do anything. The
1: plot is that all these people get killed. Batman uncovers it. He realizes that his dad was corrupt also or that his dad engaged in corruption with Carmine Falcone. Finally, we get to the end. Paul Dano does the... F- it's such a ripoff of Seven.
0: He you're, gives himself up. You're going to get another yeah. ad here. <laughs> this the podcast is not sponsored by pizza, sp- but if you doesn't feel like get captured having captured pizza, by Batman. Get,
1: Batman does not prevent a single one of these deaths. Batman, in fact, is complicit in one of the deaths by accident. And he doesn't actually capture the Riddler because he's clever. The Riddler gives himself up by sitting at a diner and getting arrested.
0: This is interesting. Okay, so this is interesting. This is interesting Ben take, which we're going to dive a little bit deeper into. And this is where he's saying that the Batman doesn't actually solve any problems or prevent any crime that the Riddler is perpetrating. You could argue that he does... Uh, help prevent some of the chaos at the very end of the film that Riddler's followers are trying to uh, perpetrate. But other than that, yeah, I mean, he's not wrong here. <laughs> this is Batman is failing a lot on his way to solving the end problem. Um, so Riddler is succeeding in most everything. And and Riddler's perspective that Batman is on his team is a very interesting one. And this is where, so I agree that this whole, this whole portion of the movie is a little bit awkward but i also enjoy the fact that batman is is failing because failure is what often teaches us to learn especially heroes right hero's journey is all about how do you keep failing while you move ahead into what you are going to become eventually and so uh interesting takes interesting takes there and i think that he's basically right on batman's not solving any of those things and that is awkward because we feel like batman should be the greatest detective already. And we know that in this movie, he's not necessarily, he's working up towards that. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because this is where we really get into, um this is the last segment I'm going to play of his review. Oh, well, actually I got one more to play for his review, but we're getting into the root of the problem that Ben has with this film. So I'm going to skip ahead to eight eight 842 about, um, and we'll play that for a little bit. Here we go. From City. And so Batman goes up there and he's beating
1: people up. There comes a point where he's beating this guy and he's really like maybe beating him almost to death. And he stops and they take off that guy's mask and they say, who are you? And the guy says, I am vengeance. Okay, now this is the theme throughout the film. Ooh, the theme. Okay, so in order to explain why this is a problem, you have to now understand the character of the Riddler. So it says right at the beginning of the movie, who is Batman? I'm vengeance, right? He's just on the streets and he's beating people up. I'm vengeance. And then people keep calling him Mr. Vengeance for no apparent reason. Like we don't know why they're calling him that because he never actually publicly says he's vengeance. It's in his creepy diary, which, again, is supposed to be a mirror image of the fact that the Riddler also keeps a Zodiac Killer style diary. So they're supposed to be two halves of the same whole. Batman is beating up this follower of the Riddlers. He takes off his mask and the guy says, I'm vengeance. And suddenly Batman sees, suddenly Batman realizes he can't be vengeance. That's not what he's meant to do. He's
0: betrayed his mission. And so he. Interesting points here. Interesting points from Mr. Shapiro here. So let's just let's just cover this again. What's what, what's Ben Shapiro's take here? And then we're gonna play this clip a little bit longer and and watch a little bit more of it. Everyone sees Batman as vengeance, and Batman claims to be vengeance. But then when Batman hears that the Riddler, Riddler's followers are also claiming to be vengeance, right? He, we just he just explained that in that scene. We saw a little bit of a clip from it too. That Batman has this epiphany that like vengeance is wrong, right? Like that's that's the kind of the crux of this. Uh, Of this part of the story. Batman started out thinking vengeance was the right way to behave. As he's done his detective work, what he's realizing is that the problem in Gotham is not the same as what he thought it was, and therefore vengeance as a solution is probably not going to work. Now, I actually agree with Ben's assessment here that this is uh, interesting. I think he's on to something, but also I don't have any problems with Batman learning that vengeance is bad or wrong. Because vengeance is very bad and very wrong, right? Like, that should be apparent. Like, one of the things in Batman is, uh, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, but one of the philosophies in Batman is that if Batman were to act out of vengeance because his parents were killed, out of his own trauma, is he has personal trauma, and then he puts uh, puts that personal trauma back into the world in the form of vengeance, that is not justice. That is not heroic behavior. Other characters might do some of those kinds of things, But that is not actually what Batman does. Batman actually says, I had trauma. I want to prevent that trauma from happening to other people in Gotham. And therefore, I'm going to become uh, justice for Gotham. Notice the difference there. It's not a selfish act. It's a selfless act, right? He has to say, well, this happened to me. Now I need to get over it in order to help other people. So um, I think it's good that this message is embedded in the Batman. whereas. Ben maybe thinks it's not good, but what we're going to now get into is something that I probably am far more in agreement with Ben Shapiro on than maybe some other people. So let's go ahead and play uh, through the about minute 10, a little after minute 10, and then we'll see uh, what Ben's take is here.
1: He then descends on an electrified cable because he's trying to stop people from being electrocuted by this flying electrical wire and he cuts off the cable he's holding on to it he falls down into the water a rebaptism he gets up and then he proceeds to lead a bunch of people who are not really trapped but kind of trapped I suppose <laughs> and he leads them to i guess a safer place by carrying a torch and then he goes up to the top of Madison Square Garden and he is helping people be airlifted and evac'd out medevac'd out and this is how he
0: is learned fulfillment Go- uh Gotham's- Gotham Gotham Square Garden by the way not Madison Square Garden although I can understand why he would he would say that because it looks just like Madison Square Garden in a lot of ways um All right so let's get into this because now we're getting into and I'm not I don't I'm not gonna play any other clips from from Ben's video again you should go watch Ben's video if you really want to see all of the nuances of his take. I'm trying to describe them here and shout out to him for for putting this video out there. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I'm not going to show any more of it. You can go watch the rest of it and see what his full take is. I'll talk about some of it here though. So Ben's take ultimately about what this movie is about and why he doesn't like it. Why actually, why he actually hates it. We both saw him say that. We all saw him say that in the beginning of this clip or heard him say it. This movie is about how fighting criminality or criminals isn't doing any good. And then Ben says, well, he has to stop being Batman because he can't fight criminals and actually has to become more like Superman. And he needs to save people as opposed to beating up bad guys. That's that's the character change that we see here. And he calls that a defund the police attitude. Ben calls it that. Ben calls it in his video a defund the police attitude. So Batman is supposed to be someone who protects innocents and targets criminals. And so Ben thinks that Matt Reeves hates Batman And thus, Ben hates the Batman. And that's basically his his overall take. So, do I agree with this aspect of Ben's take? I've agreed with some of the things he said. I've disagreed with some of the other things that he said. Well, the first thing I'll disagree with is I don't think this is about a defund the police attitude. I don't think that that's right. I talked about this earlier. A defund the police attitude would assume that... No vigilante could ever exist because you don't, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There's some people that would say communities should police themselves, but honestly, I don't think that that's about the police force. I think it's about the type of police force that exists, right? So that's different, but a vigilante who's just you know, puts on a costume and has a lot of heavy, heavy weaponry and goes out into the populace to to fight crime. I don't think uh, that is a defund the police Um I don't think that's one of their principles. Like, let's go fund vigilantes. I'm vigilantes. I don't think that that's part of their part of the thing. I do, though, totally agree with Ben Shapiro. totally agree with him in terms of the characterization of Batman in the last few minutes of this film. Not really feeling like Batman to me. Now, do have I already acknowledged and already agreed that he needs to learn that vengeance is not the right? thing to do. Yes, I have acknowledged that. I agree with that. I think that Matt Reeves pointing that out is really important. I think that Matt Reeves pointing that out in 2022 where a lot of people want to take vengeance into their own hands on airplanes and stuff, it's a good message actually. It's a good message. It's something we should think about, right? Especially when you see corruption and which we see a lot of these days. Um so I agree that that's a good message. However, when we see batman he, he you know ben mentioned him cutting the electrical wire uh effectively saving some people cuz they're all in the water and if the electrical cable fell in the water they'd all be electrocuted um he, so he he prevents he cuts off the electrical wire i kind of thought that he was going to have by the way when i was watching that scene unfold in in the theater i kind of thought that he was going to have like some lingering problem related to getting electrocuted but of course he doesn't it's just kind of not a big deal and then he then he you know like ben said he lights the he lights the torch and then walks across leads these people out from this um from this water. A cool scene, by the way, a cool looking scene. But so I don't have any problems with those things because that's Batman showcasing to the populace that he's not just somebody who beats up other people. He also is here to do good things, right? I don't have a problem with that. So when I talk about it not feeling like Batman, what am I talking about? Well, At the end of the movie, when he's talking about how he, there's a voiceover, which voiceovers are always uh, difficult to pull off well. I'll put it that way. A lot of writers actually will try to avoid voiceovers at all costs because they have major issues with them. I don't necessarily have major issues with them. I used a voiceover. We used a voiceover in our film, um, in our Star Wars fan film that we did. We used a voiceover there. But I do have an issue where he's talking about, I need to become Hope. This is, in my opinion, I think not what Batman is attempting to become. Nolan was much closer to saying, I need to become fear for the people who are perpetrating evil so that they will stop perpetrating evil. Batman's not becoming fear in the Nolan universe so that he can oppress a populace. He's using fear to make people make the right decision it's no different than the laws we have in place right the laws we have in place are partially there to create fear from you disobeying them right like that's part of why the reason why we have laws this is there hopefully you won't go commit crimes because you're afraid of going to jail or having some some uh bigger problem arise in your life here so ben calls this a fundamental betrayal of the character and i think that that's partially true I think that some of his logic here is actually sound. It's a partial betrayal of the character. Now, I'm talking about a much smaller piece of the film than Ben is. I'm talking about the voiceover where he says, I'm going to have to become Hope, um, which I think is a very odd thing for him to say. So let me just say this. I love this film. Quite frankly, I love this film up all the way up until we see Riddler in jail. And then from that point on, I think the film becomes a little less clear in what it's attempting to do. I don't mind the fact that there's the vengeance thing that he needs to learn not to be vengeance. And when he sees other people saying that they're also going to be vengeance, it's a realization for a vigilante to say, oh, whoa, other people have heard me say I'm vengeance and look what they're doing, right? Um, That's not good. In fact, in one of the Nolan movies, I believe it was The Dark Knight, um, people are dressing up like Batman to go beat up other people. So a realization, vengeance is not the thing that we're trying to do here. Um, I also love the fact that it's dark and gritty. I love the music. We've already covered that. Batman is bitter, angry, and vengeful, but we know that Batman can't stay that way. So I like that aspect of it. The Riddler, Riddler, besides the fact that I I would probably have showcased him differently in this film, he actually serves as a good enemy here because Batman needs to see what it looks like to go too far when you're fighting corruption. That's great. That's great. Perfect. Perfect portrayal of what that looks like. But in the end, I think that Ben is correct when he says that the concept of Batman is that in dealing with depravity, the depravity that exists in Gotham, the corruption, the injustice, the issues in Gotham, the question of Batman is not how do we provide people hope, but rather how do we create order out of chaos? That's different. Those are two different things. Superman is the, how can I show people what hope looks like and what people should be doing to showcase hope in their lives? That's different. Because Batman's character is never portrayed as a type of Christ, let's say. You would never look at Batman that way, but you might look at Superman sometimes that way, because it's inherent in the character. In fact, the creation of Superman was very similar to Saying what would it look like if the Messiah, the character who's supposed to create a just and fair and equal society, that which, by the way, is a different version than Jesus Christ as Messiah. I'm talking about more of a Jewish perspective of Messiah here. Superman is kind of that. He is. And that meaning hope, and if he looks like hope, that makes a lot of sense. Batman is distinctly not that because Batman is about what do you, what is it okay to do in going about creating order? So imagine that you, that Batman is more closely related to the first order in star Wars. The first order takes it too far. They oppress, they come down on, they restrict people's freedoms. Batman says in this super corrupt environment, how far do I have to fight back? overcome corruption how far do i have to go to create a fear of doing evil so that we can create more order so that the normal citizens who are doing the right things are not oppressed by the corrupt society and the question of batman is when do you take order too far and it's that tension of like freedom and like whether or not we should use violence and when we should use violence and and what that looks like saying i'm going to become hope is to me I agree with Ben Shapiro, not what we actually expect out of Batman. Um now, let's move on let's, let's move on from this a little bit to say Batman is dealing with psychopaths a, a lot of times. What is Superman dealing with? Well, a lot of times he's dealing with existential threats or threats that are coming from a cosmic place or threats that are coming because someone like Lex Luthor is abusing the capitalist system and it is abuse of the capitalist system S- S- superman's like well we got to create hope here because this is this is not the way the american way right Truth and justice is the american way um for superman uh so i think that ben shapiro is on something but i have less of a problems problem with overarchingly what he's saying is going on here i don't think it's as serious as he's saying it's going on but I do think it's, it's worthy of actually exploring in more detail. So partially agree with Ben Shapiro, partially disagree with him. He hates the film. And I think it's great up until the last 30 to 45 minutes. He said it was a million minutes long. That's pretty funny. I think I actually want to give him a, a credit for, for being pretty funny in that clip. Um, I do though. I'm not going to say it's a 10 out of 10. I think it's about a six and a half out of 10. That's where I would probably put it on my scale um, so he's partially right. I partially agree with him. But overarchingly, I uh, I don't agree with him fully. So there you go. That's my take on Ben Shapiro's take on the Batman. Let me know what your takes are in the comments down below. In the meantime, I am going to move on to the next segment where we talk about episode four of Moon Knight. Um, and I will say this uh, off the bat. This was my second favorite episode of Moon Knight. Um, past. The first one was my favorite. This is my second favorite episode of Moon Knight. So let's get into why that is and what exactly is going on in the show. We'll dig a little deeper into it. Look at some of the storytelling aspects that they're doing here. So one thing that, that it did annoy me a little bit uh, from last night's episode, uh, episode four, why didn't the Ennead, the Egyptian, the, the forum of Egyptian gods, why didn't they send someone to verify that Harrow wasn't up to something? Like, can we can we do our due diligence, Egyptian gods, before we execute judgment? Basically, they, they basically you know, Kanchu gets a meeting uh, with the Egyptian gods. He uses Mark Spector as his as his you know speaking piece because he speaks through him. He possesses him and speaks through him. All the other avatars are there for the other Egyptian gods, and the Egyptian gods are basically like, all right, well, you say that Arthur Harrow is bad. Let's ask Arthur Harrow. And Arthur Harrow, are you bad? I'm not bad. Con- Conchu is obviously bad yeah you're right arthur harrow Conchu and Conchus a jerk all right get him out of here right? Like they, they like literally lock Conchu up in a statue without doing any due diligence like can you go see what arthur harrow is doing like, that was that made me laugh that made me laugh a little bit i'm a big fan of this show but i thought that that that, that if the Egyptian gods are only as sophisticated as your average Twitter user, when it comes to due diligence, that may be something you want to take a look at. <laughs> you may want to, you may want to question that, call it into question. Um, one question, by the way, I don't think we have an answer for yet, is what will actually happen if Ammit is released? Uh, it's interesting that they have not revealed that to us. We have a sense that it's bad. But we don't actually know what it is that will happen if Emmet is released. And I think it's kind of interesting that they haven't gotten into that yet. But I will say this I really loved this episode. I really, really love it. And for those of you who know me and know that I love Indiana Jones, you pretty much know why I love this episode. This felt like this is the closest thing since, you know, since basically uh, in terms of live action, this is the thing that has felt most like Indiana Jones to me going all the way back to The Last Crusade. Now, I'm sure there's other things that have felt like Indiana Jones, and you can let me know in the comments Like, what are some of the other things that have felt like Indiana Jones to you. This really felt like Indiana Jones, and I really enjoyed the heck out of that. Um, I did find some of the moments between Steven and Layla. I found them to be really well done. Right. There's, 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 there's a, there's a pretty cute interactions between St- Stephen and Layla. Layla kind of is attracted to Stephen because he's, he's basically Mark, but some things about Mark that she didn't, that she struggled with are not present in Stephen. Um, and then Stephen, you know, of course, is very fond of this woman who also shares his love of Egyptian things, but, uh, and, and he thinks she's beautiful, obviously. So, so I, I think that those are really cute scenes but man they were driving me nuts because like i'm like they're about to find Amit, dude they're about to find and <laughs> you guys are making out and like having cute little scenes together like maybe save that <laughs> for later uh so I, it made me laugh a lot but i didn't hate it because the scenes were really well done so i i liked it but I, as a writer i was thinking to myself like they're gonna find Amit before you get down there because you're kissing um we we got the we got this really interesting reveal that Alexander the Great was Ammit's last avatar, or at least yeah I guess last avatar. I guess Arthur Harrow I'm not sure is exactly her avatar yet, probably. So that's kind of an interesting take there. Is that? Uh, but Alexander the Great being her last um, avatar is interesting. Would we say that? Would we say that Alexander the Great was evil? Well, he was certainly a conqueror and uh, conquered a lot of territory and killed a lot of armies in the process now did he oppress people along the way you know we'd have to go deeper into an understanding of who Alexander the Great was and what he was up to so I don't know the answer to that but it is fascinating because he was Greek or as they say in the in the show Macedonian um, but still considered himself a pharaoh I had not heard that before and I'm not an Egyptologist so I had to go back and look into that to see if how true that was um, but that was really interesting. I, I really liked that because I was expecting to see some sort of other Egyptian um, lore worked in there, but it wasn't Egyptian lore at all. It was actually Macedonian and that was, that was fascinating to me. So that was fun. Um, I think it's interesting to see if they're also suggesting that Amet was the conqueror and Alexander the Great being her avatar was just using her powers to do that. And that's what basically Arthur Harrow is looking for. That's interesting. That's an interesting thing to kind of explain what could happen if uh if amit was released as i mentioned at the beginning of what i was talking about here is I, we don't really know what's going to happen when amit's released well maybe maybe that's it maybe arthur harrow becomes the next um alexander the great and just starts conquering territories right that could be that could be part of it now last episode i did predict uh, last episode of this show of the story Geek show i did predict this is i shouldn't say last episode on thursday's episode last week last thursday's episode i did predict that mark was involved in layla's father's death i didn't get that 100 wrong but it did turn out that that was true that he was involved in that and we don't know exactly how conchu entered the picture here yet we do know that mark was a mercenary who was involved in a mercenary takeover of whatever archaeological dig layla's father was overseeing and that mark got caught up in all that layla's father was killed in that mark was then shot by the same group of mercenaries so presumably because there was some sort of treasure that they were taking although we don't even know what that was and then presumably, this is when Khonshu showed up to say, hey, Mark, if you want to live, you can be my avatar, right? Like, that's probably what how that unfolded. We don't get that exactly, but that seems like we can infer that to a degree. Now, if you've seen the Thor trailer, which is a fun trailer for sure, Taika Waititi, it's going to be a fun trailer. It's <laughs> not surprising. But you know that we've got Egyptian gods. We've got Norse gods. Thor's a Norse god. Odin was a Norse god. Loki's a Norse god. And then we've got Greek gods now too, because they have uh, what many people are are thinking. In the in my reaction to that, I was like, "Is this supposed to be Zeus?" Because it seems like it's Zeus. Well, other people are saying like, "Yeah, we think it's Zeus." So you got greek gods you got norse gods you got egyptian gods all in the mcu (laughs) so that's pretty fascinating it goes back to my conversation with daryl and how we talked about how that changes the power dynamics in the mcu and who has what powers and why those are fascinating it is pretty interesting to suggest that the entire time the mcu has been going on there have been egyptian gods playing in these things in some way shape or form which is which is really interesting um there's one point in the show that I really liked, and that's when uh, we can get a little bit deeper into this. When Arthur Harrow is asking Layla if Mark has told her the truth, her response is, "Well, obviously you're dying to," <laughs> and I really like that because a lot of times as writers, we realize that we need to communicate something, we need to reveal something. There's some, there's a part in uh, Death of a Bounty Hunter here, my my uh, novel, which is coming out as a full cast audiobook soon, and there's a part in there where one character needs to tell another character that something happened. And that always feels – or can feel as if it's forced exposition because that doesn't happen – you don't see that happen a lot of times in our our daily lives where it's like, why don't you just tell me what – you obviously want to tell me something. Usually people just blurt it out, right? But writers – They don't blurt things out because they're working towards a climax or they're working towards a twist or they're working towards an angle. And so uh, I like the fact that she said, well, you're obviously dying to tell me what what happened. Because it was almost like calling out that that's a weird thing that writers do. Uh, And I like that. I thought that was cool. Um, I also thought that uh, one of the phrases that Arthur Harrow gave us was really interesting. Because if you'll notice, he said, he said, after he shoots Mark. He says to Mark, I can't have anyone who, I can't save anyone who won't save themselves. I can't save anyone who won't save themselves. And I thought that was fascinating because that goes really far back into a Western ideal. It is oftentimes conflated with a biblical ideal. Let's talk about that because that's weird, right? This, I can't save anyone who won't save themselves is very it's very American meritocracy oriented. If you think about it, you deserve to be saved, then you can be saved, right? That's like the, that's like the nature of that if I can't save anyone who won't save themselves. So you got to be worthy of being saved, and then I'll save you. And which is kind of a paradoxical in some ways. and this this comes from it. this is, you know, just partially derived from an old American statement that was especially true of Christians saying, god helps those who help themselves very similar phrase i can't save anyone who won't save themselves god helps those who help themselves and that phrase does not appear in the bible by the way that's not actually something that god has ever said people say god well you know god say god helps those who help themselves like that's not it's not a thing so that that phrase apparently based on some very minor research i did i did not like i didn't do a whole bunch of research on that because i had to watch the show yesterday but that phrase apparently comes from an ancient Greek phrase about the gods helping those who help themselves. So think about it this way. That phrase arose from a partial truth that we need to do things in order to what what we sow we reap, right? We need to do things in order to get things. That's the way the the economy of the world works that way. But what's interesting to me is, is that it's not a biblical phrase at all. And I don't know how the Christians in America got a hold of it to say, you know, God helps those who help themselves, because it's actually uh, a misinterpretation. It's an anti-Christian phrase. Let me just put it that way. It is not a fundamental understanding. I'm going to get back to Arthur Harrow in a minute, by the way. But this is just some etymology of where he's coming from. I think it's really interesting. It's not a Christian phrase at all, because the entire concept of the Christian faith Now, you may not hear this very often because, again, some people start to interpret things based on their own understanding as opposed to actually delving into what the sacred texts actually say about Christianity. But the entire concept of the Christian faith is that God helps those who literally cannot help themselves. Right? There's nothing a human being can do based on an understanding of the Bible. You may disagree with this, but I'm just saying what's in the Bible, what the Bible is telling us is there's nothing that a human being can do to be made worthy of God's grace or love. So there's nothing a human being can do to be made worthy of God's grace or love. That's Now, that's interesting because it's not at all what that phrase would suggest. God helps those who help themselves. Right? That is why... That is why that Christ's death and resurrection are critical to Christ followers. Because if He doesn't die and resurrect, then we are on the we are we are on the hook for saving ourselves and becoming worthy to be have a relationship with God. But what I would tell you as a Christ follower is, well, there's nothing we can do. That's why Christ needed to die. Well, otherwise Christ would not have needed to die and resurrect. Right? That doesn't make any sense, actually, conceptually. <laughs> if you can do it yourself, why would Christ have needed to die for you? So, let's circle back around to Arthur Harrow, because actually, that perspective matters as it pertains to his character. And I love his use of the phrase, because what it's doing is it's showing us what his religion is, and probably, by definition, what Ahmed's religion is. He thinks that people can make themselves worthy And that he, along with Amit, uses the scales, the tattoo he has of the scales, he uses that to weigh people to see whether or not they're worthy. And if they're not worthy, they die. If they are worthy, they get to benefit by being a part of heaven on earth, right? And the question is, is why is that evil? What does it mean to be worthy? How can you possibly be worthy if, you are killing people so that you can bring about heaven is it okay to kill people and now we're getting into (laughs) now we're getting into the batman question (laughs) but yeah but this is but this is this is really fascinating from this character's perspective he definitely feels like what what he feels is the right thing to do and he's pursuing that so i think that for i really like it because for a villain to say that makes a lot of sense because it instantly adds him as a villain in my eyes because I, as a Christ follower, I don't believe that people can save themselves or make themselves worthy. And so playing with that idea, I think is really interesting to me. It's really a fascinating thing to play with. Now, um, that's the last part of this episode that makes a lot of sense, but the next part is actually awesome. Even though it gets bizarre, <laughs> some people may not have liked it. I liked it a lot. I like we went from Indiana Jones to Twelve Monkeys. The last the last few scenes of this of this particular episode really felt like Twelve Monkeys to me, and it felt really fun because of it. So I liked that kind of that kind of callback to this uh, to this kind of environment where we where we wonder if as the viewers we're the ones who who are crazy because we don't have any clue about what's going on. Right? I liked that a lot. That was really fun. And we get we but first, before we get to that kind of crazy scene, which I'll describe in a minute, we actually see Mark sinking into a pool, which I thought was really well done visually. Because a lot of times when a character is like entering the afterlife or something, it looks really dumb in this. I think the fact that he kept sinking into that bottomless pool and then there's the light that shone and he kind of fell into the light. That was kind of cool. And for a while there, it's really funny that 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 I was watching it thinking like, oh, this looks like the sunken place from Get Out looks like he's falling into the sunken place. As you see the character from Get Out falls into that kind of abyss as well. Um, and what's funny about that is that uh, I watched this by myself. I made notes. I wrote that down. It seemed like the sunken place. And as we were watching, my, wa- my wife turned to me on that scene, because I watched it again with her. And she turned to me on that scene. and was like, oh, this feels like the sunken place. I'm like, yeah, it totally does, um, which is really fun. Um, but in this new scene... Uh, Well, first of all, we get a really fun scene where we get this old movie, this old VHS movie called Tomb Buster, Tomb Busters, which is really funny. And it looks like uh, sort of an Indiana Jones inspired ripoff movie where and we see that Stephen Grant is the lead character in that movie and that Mark Spector has made a hero out of Stephen Grant, this guy who's looking for Egyptian relics and things. Actually, in in the movie, yeah, he's actually looking for Aztec relics, but same that he's he's that kind of character. And so we're wondering, does that mean that Stephen Grant doesn't actually exist and he's a figment of Mark Spector's imagination and that he's a different personality that he's drawn to because of that? Which I thought was really an interesting question. And then we see a bunch of people in the mental institution, including uh, both familiar characters and familiar objects. We see an action figure of the moon knight there's egyptian artifacts i couldn't remember why there was cupcakes they kept showing cupcakes and i'm like where did the cupcakes come from did he did he buy cupcakes at some point in time in the first episode or something i don't remember that if you remember that let me know but it, there was a bunch of things that were called out um whether it was the photo there was the picture on on arthur harrow is is his psychiatrist the, he's wearing sandals he has a cane things that Arthur Harrow had in in real life, whatever that means, because we don't know. (laughs) And then there was a picture on the wall of the uh, European area where Arthur Harrow was building up his followers, where we actually first see Arthur Harrow, I believe. I believe that's the first time we ever see him. So again, all of that reminded me of 12 Monkeys. Uh, There's a ton of callbacks in there. I thought it was a great scene. Um, And then we hit the end of the episode where Mark escapes from Arthur Harrow. He finds Steven in a sarcophagus. He passes up another sarcophagus that is definitely, definitely inhabited by the third personality who we have yet to meet. We only have a couple episodes yet. We have yet to meet the third character. I believe this is a six, six episode run. Correct me if I'm wrong. It could be eight, but I'm pretty sure it's six. Um, and then all of a sudden they open the door and they run into the hippo goddess. And, uh, and that was extremely bizarre. She spoke English and she kind of waved at them comically she was a CG character, obviously. And then they just freak out. So this episode felt a lot more similar to Loki to me in a lot of ways. You know, there's this there's the episode where the two Loki's, the female Loki and the male Loki. Um, well, the normal Loki, I should say, the I guess it's the 2012 Loki for better the lack of a better description. The lead character in that that show when they get to um I don't remember the name of them, but they're like the time council, right? Like if you, if you, if you're in the comments, let me know what, the, let me know what the name of them was, but they get to the time council and it's, and then they realize it's all fake. Like, Oh wow. This whole thing, this whole setup is like fake. Um And that's sort of what feels like is happening here in moon Knight is that they are showing up somewhere and it feels like maybe this is fake. Like maybe they're trapped in some sort of mind prison where they're trying to work Mark Spector out of his you know, belief system. So um, maybe there's like a world where uh, there's one Egyptian god who can alter reality for all of the avatars who die. But maybe we'll see more of this in the upcoming episode. I don't know. I don't know much about the Egyptian goddess who is showcased as a hippo. I don't know much about that. So I will say this episode was my second favorite episode. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and probably after the first episode, it was something that I really, you know, really thought was really thought was great. So, hopefully, you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, let's go behind the scenes of chapter one of Death of a Bounty Hunter, the full cast audiobook. Let's get into uh, how we produce the full cast audiobook of Death of a Bounty Hunter because a full cast audiobook is not something that you see very often. So, how did we do it? How did it come about? I'll talk a little bit about that. You've heard me read part, part of the first chapter myself. On Tuesday, I played a clip from the full cast audiobook version where Tim Lim and Benjamin James, two of the actors that we hired to play the two roles, they actually um, completed that scene. So that was really fun. And I think the question for today that I'll that I'll answer is a behind the scenes kind of question: is how do you go about writing a full cast audiobook? So for anybody out there who's like, "Wow, that's kind of a cool idea." It's not really an audio drama. If you listen to the clip, you would realize it's not really an audio drama, but it has some of the same feel in some ways. So what's different about a full cast audiobook? What's different about an audio drama? And how do you actually write something like that? That's what I'm gonna talk about for a little bit now. Well, first of all, my, the, um, there were two inspirations for the full cast audiobook. The first inspiration came, if you have been to the How Stories Work with Jay Shear channel, there is a movie on that channel that the Reclamation Society, the nonprofit that Nathan and I operate, um, we produced a short film. Um, Marianne Holland um, starred in that in that uh, in that film, uh, alongside Maddie Curley uh, was another star of that film. Benjamin James directed that film. Lucas Colombo um, was the DP fantastic they did a fantastic job go check that out it's a a star wars fan film um it meant a lot to us to produce it It is it is an anti-bullying star wars fan film but in a very interesting way that you probably would not expect so go check that out on that channel we created that film in 2016 and that was a really fun process but if you're going to do professional looking short films it is going to cost you a lot of money and so we raised a lot of money a lot of the actors and the people on set took huge pay cuts to work on that film with us because they were all huge star Wars fans and one, and they believed in the script. They believed in the story. They wanted to create the film with us. Again, it's not a PSA for anti-bullying. It's a, it's a very pretty in-depth look at bullying and what it does to people. So they all really liked it. And I was really privileged to work with all of them, blessed to work with all of them. Um So, we did that film, and we realized once that film was complete how expensive it was to produce films like that, really expensive. At the same time, we had started the Story Geeks podcast. We had started getting cool microphones like these. By the way, I usually buy these things used at like a guitar center or something. So if you ever want to buy like a setup, but you want to get it for cheaper, buy them used. Um, but they're really quality. They're really high-quality stuff. So we had started to get all of this audio equipment. We have these friends, a, lar- a large network of friends who are actors or involved in um, Hollywood productions of all kinds of sorts. And so we said, oh, "We really want to do something that's like a film, but it's hard to afford to produce lots of films." So what we said was, what if we what if we did an audiobook I had listened to. Neil Gaiman's American Gods, and Neil Neil Gaiman's American Gods, really interesting book by the way. Um, lots of uh, lots of mythology in terms of gods is included in Neil Gaiman's work, which is worth reading if you're if you're having fun like unraveling what Moon Knight is all about and what the MCU is doing with gods. American Gods is a really interesting take on mythology and gods and how those things work. But I'd listened to that full cast audiobook, and it was very apparent to me that that book was written as a normal novel. And then later on, they decided that we went, since we were producing the TV show, what if we had those same actors come in and voice the roles in the book and then release that as a full cast audiobook? And as I listened to that, I thought to myself, you know what? You can do a full cast audiobook in a way that's different than most full-cast audiobooks are produced. Most full-cast audiobooks are, there's a novel, the novel does well enough, and then they say we should produce a full-cast audiobook of this novel. But if you were to start writing a full-cast audiobook from the very beginning, knowing that it was going to be a full-cast audiobook, how would that be different? In other words, it it's not that it was something that was adapted to be a full-cast audiobook, but was actually written to be a full-cast audiobook, how would it be different? And so Nathan and I took that as a challenge and we started writing Death of a Bounty Hunter um, as a full cast audiobook, even before we thought about it as a novel. So it, it had existed as a short film. It had existed as a short story, prose. But we said, before we make it a novel, let's actually make it a full cast audiobook first and then take that script and adapt it into being a novel. And the reason we did that was because when I listened to the Neil Gaiman's full cast audiobook of uh, American Gods, it was basically one narrator reading like 90% of the book. And then there were other voices of other characters who said things in the story. Um, but since a lot of that takes place as a third person narrator, there wasn't a lot of voice work to be done by the cast. Nor was there changing narration styles depending on who was narrating. Because there's only one person narrating the whole time. There's a third person narrator the whole time, the whole way through. So the first thing we changed about our book was it was going to be first person narration from three different character perspectives. Meaning that we had three narrators that essentially narrate anywhere from 20 to 30% of the book. um, Or I should say probably 20 to 40% of the book. Each one of them is responsible for a big chunk of the book. And so Tim Lim plays Flint, uh, Timothy Prindle plays Deckard and uh, Marianne Holland plays um, um, Audrey Matheson. And then for the other characters, so when we went into writing it, we knew it's gonna be first person perspective of the characters, not a third person perspective where they're telling you what the character's thinking or telling telling you what the character's doing, but rather inhabiting the brain of a character they're telling you how they're feeling they're telling you how they're interacting with the world that was how we wrote that book three different characters narrating. then we added more dialogue from other characters where possible. I'd love to even add a little bit more dialogue if I could in the next book we do but um, so that so that we can get more actors involved and they could be doing more fun things So that was really how we said if we're going to adapt this and write a full cast audiobook to be a full cast audiobook that's how we would adapt it and that's what we did Um, now you'll notice that it is not an audio drama. And I have a video I did about this too. Like, well, what's a full cast audiobook and what's an audio drama and why is there a difference? And does anyone care? Well, you might not care, but I cared a lot because in a lot of audio dramas, there's a lot of reliance upon sound design to tell the story. That can be good, but I think it can also be negative because from a writing perspective, You have to do a little bit more telling as opposed to showing. Now, what's the difference between telling and showing? I could do an entire podcast on that. But basically, if I say I'm anxious, I'm telling you that I'm anxious. If I say I'm sweating, my palms are slick with sweat, my heartbeat's going faster, I am fidgeting in my chair, I haven't told you that I'm anxious, but I'm showing you that I'm anxious. Basically that's the difference between telling and showing, right? Just one, one, one thing is I'm gonna tell you directly. The other thing is I will, uh, I will showcase it to you in behaviors and in thought processes and in what I'm concerned about. So, uh, so, in an audio drama a lot of times because of the nature of it a lot of times you don't have an internal monologue of any one character to tell you what's going on and or a third person narrator especially is usually not present and so what you have is you have characters that say things that people normally wouldn't say like sure is cold in here well because how else would i know it was cold (laughs) right like there's no way for me to know it was cold unless a character says that and now sometimes that's normal for a character to just say but sometimes it's awkward for a character to say. like why would you say that it's like irrelevant to what's happening so uh so there are some great audio dramas out there there are some great audio drama writers out there but i didn't think that that was probably something that i could do as well and so what i tried to do instead was it's an audiobook style where we're in the character's mind it's a first person perspective so they are acting it out but i can use you know more of what i'm accustomed to in writing both whether it's screenwriting and or um, novel writing and the big difference and one of the big things I think that makes novel writing more fun than screenwriting because there's a lot of things that make screenwriting more fun than novel writing but one of the things that makes novel writing more fun than screenwriting is um, you can actually inhabit a character's thoughts can you do that with a screenplay yeah but it's going to be a voiceover And we just talked about Batman and how, you know, basically the end voiceover for Batman is what ruined it, not ruined it, what made it less impactful to me. And so in an audio book or a novel, you can get into the character's mind much easier than, than you can in a film because a lot of times in a film, it doesn't work as well. You can do it. Doesn't work as well. Some people have done it very creatively and it's worked great. It's harder to pull it off. So that's how we went into how do you write a full cast audiobook? Um I'm not even sure if that's something that anyone I'm sure someone has done it before but like most of the time it's you write a novel and then they convert it to a full cast audiobook. We literally went, let's do it differently. Let's start out writing a full cast audiobook. So there you go. There's a little bit behind the scenes about how that came about and why that came about. I'll go even deeper behind the scenes. I'll play a little bit more from the Fullcast audiobook. The official release date of the Fullcast audiobook is now available. The Fullcast audiobook, the official release date is May 2nd. We're only a few weeks away from the Fullcast audiobook being out. I have uh, already signed up for our distributor, it is in their hands. They have already approved the audio. All that's left is for May second to come around, and you can literally pick up a copy of the audiobook, which is insanely exciting. And I would really like to have a—I um, really want to have a—a a release party for that. So, if you want an invitation to that release party, just reach out to me, contact me through one of our social accounts, or shoot me an email or something, and say, "Hey, I'd really like to come to that release party for your Fullcast audiobook." Uh, what I'm hoping we can do is maybe have some of the actors act out some of the roles and act out some of the scenes. That would be really, really fun. So anyways, that is it for today's show. Don't forget, new episodes of The Story Geek Show come out every Tuesday and every Thursday. On Tuesday, April 26th, we will be talking about Tokyo Vice yet again. I don't have a guest lined up for that yet, so it might be a solo show, but we'll see. We'll see how that turns out. We will be talking about Tokyo Vice Episode 4 and maybe even Tokyo Vice Episode 5. We'll see if I can get two shows in. I also have to watch another movie because on next Thursday... If you guys have listened to the show, then you remember Mike Biondo. He's the one that's watching Star Wars for the first time. Well, Mike Biondo's favorite movie is The Blues Brothers, and he wants to watch that with me and talk about it on this podcast. So he'll be on next Thursday's show. Uh, We'll be talking about The Blues Brothers and probably a little bit more about Moon Knight as well. Subscribe to The Story Geek Show on YouTube or on your preferred podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. All episodes are published to the podcast feed right after i finish the recording them on YouTube. So if this is a show that you're like, hey, an hour and 15 minutes, hour, an hour to an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half sometimes, that's too long for me. I'd rather just listen on my way to work. You can listen on a podcast feed. In fact, your drive home to work today could be on the podcast feed, listening to me talk about all of this nonsense. It's all great stuff and I love talking about it. So hopefully you love it too. Leave me a comment to let me know what you thought of the Batman or episode four of Moon Knight, and I will see you next Tuesday. Have a fantastic day.